discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, disillusions, fractions. And envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, faith, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control, weakness, and the grace of God. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you live by the Spirit, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Thank you. So, try hard to be good. That seems to be the natural inclination. You know, if you're, if you're good enough, you'll get through the pearly gates, right? But why is try hard enough not enough to prevent sin? We can never do it. Why can we never do it? Because we're sinful by nature. Because we're sinful by nature. Because we have we have absorbed the word and how do we know not to resist the flesh? Right. The word tells us, the law tells us our sin, but it doesn't do anything to resolve that sin without the gospel. The gospel is what saves. The law's primary work is to reveal and to condemn and to put to death. And so the language Paul uses here, the works of the flesh, and he's talking about our sinful nature, but also too, I mean, you don't have to poke yourself to realize you have flesh and blood. I mean, if you do, there's a whole other problem we need to discuss. But even our very flesh, even our very, the synapses, the wires in our brains, they are corrupted by sin. So even if you have the best, strongest, most moral intentions, you are born in a corrupted body. You're born with a bound and sinful will. And another part in Romans, Paul talks about, you know, the good which I wish to do, I do not do, and that which I do not wish to do, I do not do. It's kind of a tongue twister. And then he says, who will save me from this body of death? Our natural inclination, even to be moral and upright citizens, or to be good, nice people and helpful neighbors, doesn't save. And all of our good works, and there are plenty of good works that people do throughout the world, and I'm glad that they're done. But why do they not save? Why do they not solve sin? What's the missing component that God requires, that God, or rather that we need? Faith. Without faith, it is an impossible to please God. And without faith, that trust in Jesus and holds on to his salvation, sin isn't solved, and we're still dead in our trespasses. But thanks be to God that Jesus Christ died and was risen from the dead to justify us, and that the Holy Spirit gives us faith that holds on 
to everything Jesus has done for us. It also says for us to take a look at Romans 7, 18 through 19. So let's flip there real quick. I might have stolen Paul's thunder. Yeah, my apologies to the Apostle Paul. I stole his thunder there. But like I said, we just, we just discussed this. We are bound by our own limitations as sinful beings in a sinful, broken world. And we're always drawn to do what we don't want to do. Verse 20, I think it is also important. Would you like to read it for us? Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Thank you. So that's the point you were making. Right, and Paul here, there's been debate in scholarly literature about, is Paul talking about the life before conversion or after conversion? Paul is talking about the life of a Christian after you have faith. Even after you have faith, even after you are baptized, you still sin. At least I know I do. And so that battle, that urge to do what we don't want to do, that's the old Adam, that's the sinful nature. Remember, you are a new creation in Christ, and that is true. But so long as we still dwell in a sinful world that has to deal with the effects of sin and corruption, there's still that pull. There's still that it's almost like a magnet trying to draw us to one side. And the Holy Spirit works throughout our life, through the Word, through the sacraments, to sanctify us so that day by day we put off the old Adam with his sinful desires and evil wishes that the new creation in Christ may live before God in righteousness and purity. It's a battle. It's a struggle, but it's not one that you're alone in. God is for you, and when you do fail, confess your sins, and he forgives, and he raises you up, and he embraces you. He says, I love you, and then he gives you that push and says, keep walking. The devil wants nothing more than for you to be so Depressed about your sin, so caught up in it, so caught up in it that you look away from Jesus and you stop living in faith. Seven B on day three. What is Saint Paul's inspired counsel for countering sin in our daily life? Jesus Christ as our Savior because he, that's how we 
Right. And flipping back to Galatians, what is the language that Paul uses for believing walk in Jesus? Walk by, walk by the Spirit. So you walk, you live, but is it of your own will or compunction or motivation? How are you living? How are you walking? By faith. By faith. And specifically, Paul says, by the Spirit. Talking about the Holy Spirit? Yes, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, as we know, is attached and gives himself in the Word and in the sacraments. Now let's see here. Could one of the kids that are here please read Galatians 5, verses 22 and Thank you. Thank you. That's a good Bible verse. Well, two verses, really. It's a good Bible passage to memorize. The fruit of the Spirit. Against such things there is no law. Paul counsels us to walk by the Spirit. And Jesus says, a good tree produces good fruit. And we know that our life, our faith, is from God is given to us by the Spirit. And it, he, the Spirit grows and prunes us like a plant or a tree. And so we can pray for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the evident fruits of walking by the Spirit. And everybody has them in different portions and everybody's at a different step along the journey. But these are these are the fruits, these are gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us. Because when we are living by faith, walking by the Spirit, and we have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, etc. These things, so pure and wholesome, given to us by God through His Word, and strengthened in us by the sacraments, these directly counter the desires of the flesh. What is the opposite of self-control? Out of control. Out of, yeah, out of, out of control. Here, here, right, so here, here's, you know, so to, if I was at a all-you-can-eat buffet and they had tons of, you know, really good prime rib, just as much as you can want, if I was disciplined, I would eat a good portion. I would enjoy the buffet, but I wouldn't eat to the point where I'm bloated and sick. 
But if I went and I just kept going, even though I knew, I'm going to really regret this later. And then while I'm at it, I add on some lobster tail and all the fixins and I don't know, whatever else is too expensive for the vicar to afford. What? You're making him hungry. Oh, I'm sorry. But, you know, what, what, do you, what, what, do, what do you call someone that, you know, what is a term for a glutton? Yeah, gluttony. That's, you know, not self-control. Here's one that I'm having to pray fervently for with a toddler in the house. If I'm always snapping and getting frustrated all the time because my daughter decides she wants to cry because she took a step the wrong way and nothing's wrong, but she still has to cry about it. What is the fruit of the spirit that I need most? Patience. Patience. And is my natural desire to be patient? Even if it's somewhere in the back of my head that that's what a dad needs to do? No. The fruit of the Spirit. You know, there's a, there's a prayer that I read somewhere a long time ago where it prays for the Holy Spirit to burn away with His love the thorns of sin that choke us and to cultivate in us the fruit of the Spirit. When you're walking by the Spirit, it looks like Jesus. And it's not perfect, because we're not going to be perfect in this lifetime. But day by day as we walk and we pray for an abundance of the fruit of the Spirit and we think a lot less about ourselves, not in a self-esteem way, but we focus more on God and on our neighbor, that sounds and looks a lot like Jesus to me. Would you agree? Okay. Question eight. The sinful nature leads to the catalog of sins in verses 19 through 21. What are some ways in which our culture today glosses over sexual sins? And then it says, list sexual euphemisms heard and seen on TV. I mean, we all know the euphemisms and other, way, other things, so I don't think we necessarily need to express any of those euphemisms or slang in current company. That being said, what are some of the ways that society overlooks or is indifferent or encourages sexual sin or, for that matter, encourages idolatry, enmity, strife? I mean, just go down the list. What are ways that society turns a blind eye or encourages those things? We think it's acceptable for marriage. Oh, all right. But living together before marriage. Living together before marriage. It's acceptable. It's acceptable. Okay. Everybody's doing it is the attitude. The attitude. Everybody's doing it. Right. It's okay. No consequences. No consequences. What are some ways? Yeah. I'm sorry I cut you off. This, that's the way they present it. Is There's no consequences. No consequences. Right. Whatever way you choose. How does society turn a blind eye or encourage strife or enmity or jealousy? Some of the advertising 
Yeah. That's in front of you all the things that you can handle. And um, I think that encourages some of this. Yeah, jealousy. Yeah. Yeah. We just had local elections here in Lincoln, and we just came off of an election cycle the past couple of years. It never ends, I don't know. But think about the ads you hear on radio or TV or on the internet. Attack ads, mud slinging. Not just, hey, this is why I disagree with their policies and let me tell you why. They're born. They're morally corrupt. They're going to infect the na- you know. Is that demonizing the other side? Is that forcing a, you know, is that whipping up a fervor of, you know, it's us versus them? Yeah. Yeah. And then right now, a big issue is, you know, this country's talking a lot about police and brutality and the justice system and all these things. And I mean, there have been riots, there have been peaceful protests, there's been lots of heated debate and, quite frankly, tantrums about these things. And, you know, if you're not with us, you're against us. And if you're not with us, frankly, I don't know how you can even consider yourself a decent human being. That is not a spirit of harmony and reconciliation. People of goodwill can have differences, but when it's a complete demonization of the other side, completely taking away their humanity, whatever side of the argument it is, that's enmity, that's strife. And you know. Our news uh, TV. Build up, you know, the whole thing about the shootings in the schools, the, the police. I mean, if they not just talk about it constantly, talk about it constantly. I mean, it's making people desire to get involved and get into those riots and things. It's yeah. It's a. They want to have that attention brought to them. It's definitely a the other side of this, uh, the other side of the double-edged sword of a twenty-four-seven news cycle. You know, a lot of things I hear with people my age is, you know, oh, you're angry about this? Good. Welcome to my life. Stay angry. Why would anybody want to stay angry? Even if you want to do something positive, long term, anger is not a good motivator because you're always going to find a nail to hang. And so pray. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for your country. Pray for your fellow Christians. Because we're still weak people too. And we're not immune to the things that are in the cultural air and water. So pray fervently because I think a good dose of the fruit of the Spirit is quite necessary for all of us and for our nation and for our church at this time. Any questions or comments so far? Okay. All right. It says, reread verse 20. 
In the pagan world of both Old and New Testament, sexual sins were part of pagan worship. Similarly, witchcraft is pagan throughout. What common practices of the world today fit here? So, verse 20. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. And so, this is a bit, this is good follow-up to the previous question. In what way does society or false religions, things in the cultural air and water, how do they promote idolatry, if not just selfish idolatry, outright paganism? Me, myself, and I. That all that is a that is a big one, you know. Live out live out your truth. Your truth is not my truth. And they can kind of coexist even if they're not, you know, if they're complete opposites. That's definitely the idolatry where you make yourself God. A lot of ancient religions, part of how you made sure you got the crops was you went to the temple and you, uh, you paid a fee and you made sure that the, uh, the gods were kind of voyeuristic and then they'd be like, all right, we'll give you some crops. Temple prostitution was a big deal. Or if push came to shove, sacrifice some people, sacrifice some babies. Sexual deviancy, a disrespect for the life of the young, of the unborn, of children. These things may not be clothed in outright offerings to pagan idol statues, but they're very much around. I have friends that grew up in the church and have left, and people leave for all sorts of different reasons. But what they have said is this, a lot of them. The church, all it did was make me feel bad, told me what I couldn't do, and, you know, I look around and, I don't know, Christians, they're disrespecting the earth, they're ravaging it, they disrespect women, I mean, on and on it goes. And then, now I just... You know, I worship the old gods because the old gods give a sense of empowerment, the respect for the earth, the respect for women, and if something's wrong, you take up the sword and you take care of it. And there's honor in doing that. And that's that idea is growing quite a bit, even if it's not necessarily what we would consider actual 
worship of anything but the idea that the old the, the old ways the ways before you know uh, the empire forced Christianity on everybody's throats that's the better way but again as we just talked about and you can find these along all sorts of mythologies and all sorts of practices in order to yes I was just curious is that where Wiccan yeah. Wiccan fits in there. That's Wiccan, Wiccan, Wiccan does fit in there, yes, broadly speaking. So they, they're quite flexible in what they uh, do because quite often Wiccan practice is a lot more solitary and personal and you only get together with other people to kind of supercharge your energy or whatever. So yes, it falls under that. But as we have discussed, a lot of the old ways, the old gods, how did you get things done? You never knew if you uh, were placating, making the gods happy. So what extremes did you have to go to in order to get the gods' attention? Infant sacrifice, temple prostitution, it's like with uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. They're cutting themselves and they're dancing and then Elijah's like, hey, maybe you should shout louder. Maybe he's on vacation or he's sleeping or he's in the toilet. And then they go crazier, you know? It's chaos and intense attempts to manipulate forces and powers out there. When quite frankly, if they're lucky, they're just uh, throwing it out to the wind. And if they're much more unlucky, they're actually <coughs> trying to get in contact with diabolical forces who will masquerade as a god, masquerade as an angel of light, and drag down to hell. <coughs> So even though we may not be out there burning witches in Salem like they did, the ideas of idolatry, of sorcery, of magic, even if it's a more subtle being in tune with the universe's energy, these ideas are out there and they're quite popular, even if it's just kind of folk magic. But any time you worship something that's not the true God, you, a person is putting themselves at grave risk. And it's not as though this doesn't have consequences for wider, wider society. I mean, tons of, tons of the prophetic books in the Bible, God explicitly says, you know, because of their idolatry, because of their immorality, because of their, you know, abominations that they commit before me, I will punish them. And God punished the nations. And so there are consequences to these things. And what is our best weapon? What is the best tools that we have to combat idolatry, sorcery, immorality, all these things that Paul talks about? What, is the be what are the best tools we have? The word, the word. We can share the Bible, share the
the gospel. Remember, the seed is sown. God's the one who gives the growth and the increase. Some falls on fertile, receptive soil. Some doesn't. The Spirit blows where the Spirit wills. What else is another tool, another weapon in our arsenal as Christians against these things? Because as Paul says in another place, we fight not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and forces of darkness. What else do we have as Christians? Prayer. 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 God asks us to pray for everything and anything and for all people in all situations. And does God promise to hear your prayer? Yes. Yes, he does. And does Jesus say, pray in a way that it's like, I wish, you know, you'll give me an answer. Or does he say, you know, pray with faith like God is actually going to respond? Pray without Hmm? Pray without ceasing. God led the Israelites in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God anointed Jesus with the Spirit and he did many miracles. And the apostles did many miracles. And they prayed and many things happened. And we still believe as the Catechism teaches, that God has created us and still cares for us, our body, our mind, our reason, our senses, all our members. He still gives us daily bread. So is God active in the world? Yes. Is God active in your life? So when you pray for your sick friend, or you pray for a nation full of strife and division, or you pray against the deceptions of the devil trying to spread through people. God will act. So pray. Pray like it's going to happen because God will act and use the word, the sword of the Spirit. All right, number 10, it says, finishing up the list of the laundry list of sins there, will not inherit the kingdom, or will not inherit the kingdom. Does this refer to going to heaven or to our life now? See Galatians 13, or not 13, Galatians 3, 18, 29, and Galatians 4, 7. by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And then 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offering, you're according to promise. Thank you. And then 4 verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also a Thank you. So, 
drunkenness, idolatry, sensuality, sorcery, all those things we read about, people who do such things will not inherit the kingdom. Are we talking about heaven, or are we talking about our life of faith right now? What do you think? Bull. Bull. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Yes. Because we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God isn't just heaven up there or a future reality. Next week, we're going to celebrate the Ascension. And at the end of the Gospel of Mark, it says that Jesus ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down on a throne. What does a person on a throne do? He rules. And if he's a king and he rules, what is he ruling? Yeah, his kingdom. And so... Heaven as that place where our souls will go to be after our bodies die. And while we are there with Christ awaiting the resurrection. If someone is unrepentant of their sins and continues in them. Are they going to go to heaven? What? Thank you. Yeah, no, they're not going to go to heaven. But does the life of faith just mean, all right, you're baptized, see after you die? Or is it a life that happens right now as we await that great and glorious day where either we will be in heaven with Christ or he shall come again? Does the life of a baptized Christian start now? I'm sorry. It's ongoing. Yeah. From the moment you have faith, from the moment you are baptized. And if you are a baptized person and you have faith, you are a member of Christ's kingdom. Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And so if a person is obstinate and unrepentant of their sin, they're not going to heaven. But are they a member of the kingdom while they're still alive right now, if they don't repent. No. No. And that's the, that's the kind of the trick. We think of kingdoms in physical, geographical, geopolitical ways because that's how we live. But God's kingdom is where Christ is. And Christ is wherever His Word is preached and taught in its truth and purity and his sacraments are administered. And that coincidentally is also where the church is. Not a church building, but the, the capital C church. And so if someone is persistent in their sin, they've excluded themselves from the fellowship of the saints. If a person is unrepentant of their sin, they, by their actions, have barred themselves from receiving communion, right? Because if you receive communion unrepentantly and not in faith, 
it's to your good or to your harm. Your harm. So it is, it's a both. It is a both. So a person unrepentant in their sin, or, well, unrepentant from our perspective, or unrepentant in the sense of they never come to faith, they're not in the kingdom, and they are not going to heaven. Any questions or thoughts so far? I feel like I'm going rapid fire today. Vickers on a roll, I guess. So what did it go over again? What Jesus said when he told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world? Is it the, the worldly thing? Right, because... Yeah, because one of the accusations that was brought against Jesus was he claims to be a king. And um, Pilate, as the governor in the Roman Empire, who was the, uh, who was the king, who was the top dog of the Roman Empire? Caesar. Caesar, yes. Beware the Ides of March. I like Caesar salads. That being said... Anybody who makes them out to be, anybody who says, oh, I'm a king, or anybody who's acclaimed as a king, when there's already another person sitting on the throne, they become a political enemy, right? And so that was one of the accusations brought against Jesus. He claims to be a king, and he's trying to usurp Caesar's authority. And so Pilate asks him, are you a king? Again, he's thinking in political geographical terms and Jesus says to him my kingdom is not of this world because Christ will come on the last day to judge all things and when the new heavens and the new earth and the new creation comes about then yes he will be reigning physically on earth with all the saints but when Christ came during his first advent at the Incarnation, did he come to overthrow Rome and to surpass Alexander the Great in carving out an empire? What did he come to do? Save sinners. Save sinners. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. All things will eventually be under his feet, but right now, he rules in the kingdom of grace. He brings people into the kingdom of God, which we said is not a physical, geographical thing. It's the communion of saints. It's the fellowship of all believers living in faith towards Christ and living under him in faith and love towards one another. And then Pilate, you know, he says, okay, you see your kingdom's not of this world. So you are a king. Like, come on, Pilate, get it through your head. And then Jesus says, you know, you say that I am because, you know, you're not wrong. I just told you my kingdom's not of this world, but okay. And even Pilate realized they got nothing on this guy, but we know how the story ends. Yeah. Does that clear it up for you a little bit? Yeah. Okay. Verse 22 in verse 19, it's having us compare. And again, we're still in Galatians. Uh, yeah, Gal Galatians 5 here. Compare singular fruit with the plural acts. 
So in verse 19, it's talking about... Where is it? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So axe and fruit. Again, that might be a slight translation difference. I believe when this was printed, it was still primarily using the NIV. But the point is still there. You know, the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. What do you think is the point of this difference? Plural acts or works versus fruit. That's a good distinction. The acts seem to be physical, whereas the fruit of the spirit are physical Could you say that? I heard part of it. I'm sorry. So the, the acts are, are physical things that you are, are sending into the flesh specifically, whereas the, the fruit of the spirit, they're restrained as. That's part of it too. So, works, acts. I pick up my cup. I get very upset at Ella. I throw my cup. That's probably a work of the flesh. But, fruit of the spirit, the works of the flesh are many and varied in that way. I mean, we have the whole laundry list. We've been going over and over. But the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, yes. But Someone has. We wouldn't know that you. If you didn't do that, we wouldn't know that would have been done. So that's kind of like an invisible thing. Like, you You're on the right track. A physical act versus thoughts and ways to deal with it. <laughs> that's, that's part of it. That is part of it. The other part, someone has to plant the seed. And obviously the person who sows the seed and gives the growth is God, right? A fruit doesn't act to do anything. It just kind of, it, it grows. It either grows or it dies, right? The spirit is the one who produces. The contrast is physical and spiritual, but the other side of the coin of that is also that by nature, we're inclined to do works of the flesh. We're inclined to sin. That's why we say in the confession and absolution, you know, 
I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess to you all my sins and iniquities, and I am by nature sinful. But the Spirit grows and produces the fruit. So it is a physical, spiritual, but also, too, it's not just, it's not strictly physical, spiritual. And I've used this example before. I can have love in my heart for my wife, but if I see her overwhelmed, going crazy, literally pulling out her hair because the children are just causing chaos and tornado activity in her apartment, and I just sit there. That's, is that love? No, I'm not showing it. So, it's indifference. So the fruit of the Spirit manifests itself in good deeds, in good actions, and again, brought about by the Holy Spirit. We have been given a new heart. Instead of a heart of stone, we have a heart of flesh. The Spirit lives within us, and through the Word, He cultivates in us these fruits. He makes it happen. So it is true that if I go and I you know, stop my wife from pulling out her hair and I take care of the kids. I am doing the action physically, yes, but was the prime motivator for me, was it really, was it primarily myself or was the first cause, as they would say, the spirit? Put it another way, when you have faith, when the Holy Spirit gives you faith, is it primarily yourself or is it God's love that motivates you to do any good deed in faith? We love because he first Loved us. And so, so it's singular because the fruit of the Spirit is God. Right. I would say so. So this is singular in our actions are plural because they're multiple, but God is singular. He's the fruit. Right. What the action of God. Yeah. The action of God. I, I think that's the... Yes, Ashley, sorry. Are these considered gifts from the Holy Spirit as opposed to like the fruits of the law on how to curb sinful, fleshly desires? Give me a second. I'm processing that. So the distinction you're asking are, are these gifts of the Holy Spirit versus the use of the law to curve. Correct? Okay. I would say these are these are gifts because we're talking in the context of what the Holy Spirit does. I know plenty of non-Christians who love their spouses, who have patience, but we're not talking about just a generic 
morality. Again, we're talking about the life of faith. Gift, fruit, the images used are, you know, different. But the point is they come from the Holy Spirit. And so here, I would say in terms of the uses of the law, this would actually be the third use of the law, which is guide. So the uses of the law, a, um, you know, a mirror or a curb, a mirror and a guide. The first use of the law, you know, do not kill. If you kill, the government will arrest and punish you. Choose to restrain sin in general. The mirror, it shows your sinfulness and your need for a savior. So in this context, with love, joy, peace, the fruit of the Spirit, a gift of the Spirit, it is a, I would, I would say, it is a guide. It is a guide because it is, it's less about what we do, but God working in and through us. Jesus uses the image again and again. A good tree produces good fruit. In the Lutheran Confessions, it talks about the Christian just does good deeds because he's a Christian. He cannot help but think of do good deeds in faith. Does that help, or am I not quite getting to what you're asking? Uh, so it is the third use of the law, or it's not? It says in the, in the, in Galatians, against such things there is no law, like the fruits of the Spirit. So, so it's, it's not the third use of the law. It's just the gift of the Spirit and those are things that you should pray for. So you shouldn't use it as a guide in your daily life, which is what the third use of the law is. I'm just wondering where, where this falls in terms of like law and gospel and like how we're supposed to look at these verses if we're going to apply them to our lives, but they're gifts and we, we don't really we're, we're, we've accepted the gift rather than Look at that as a way to live. I'm processing and I'm thinking here because you've given me quite a bit to chew on. And I appreciate that because I need that as a vicar. Thank you. Yes? I kind of look at it as the Spirit gives us, He's giving us coping tools, ways to deal with our sinfulness. And so I would say it's a gift from the Holy Spirit, not necessarily part of the law. It's a gift. And it's coping for us to how to deal with the bad things. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to I'm going to pull my card. Let me think about it, and I will get back to you next time because I want to speak properly about it. Uh, what I will say about it in terms of against such things, there is no law. That's in contrast to the list idolatry, sensuality. They're, God forbids those things, but against love, joy, peace, there's no law against them because love, joy, peace, these are characteristics, these are attributes, these are things that God himself has and gives to us. So in that respect, that's the contrast being made there. Well, what we talked about last week, too, was that, I mean, what is love? It's whatever you want it to be, and then eventually because it's not defined anymore. And so, um, I don't know, 
Um, what is the, yeah. What, I was wondering where, where the Kriya, you said you did that. Yep, I, I, will, I will think about it and give a good proper answer because it's a meaty question and it deserves to be, it deserves a good proper response, which with our time here, I don't know that I would be able to do that off the fly quite. So I appreciate it and I beg your patience to putting it off. All right. Um, question 12. How have we crucified the sinful nature as it says in verse 24? And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. How has the flesh, and here we're talking about the sinful nature, not the meat and blood and bones you got. How has the flesh and its passions and desires been crucified? And here passion is not talking about, you know, Vicar is, you know, really passionate about properly cooking some slow roasted barbecue. Passion here is used in the sense of almost like a animalistic impulse, you know, a something that kind of drives you in a negative fashion. Just wanted to make that caveat there. By belonging to Christ. By belonging to Christ. Yes. We crucify the sinful passions and desires of our flesh by belonging to Christ. However, do how, how do we belong to Christ? Well, if you read Galatians 2, 20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Yes. So that's a pretty good explanation of it, right? Yes. And I heard through, baptism. through baptism. Yeah. And baptism, as we learn in the catechism, it has a date and a time when it happened to you. But baptism, you know, after you've been baptized and you've had the water poured over you, do you, the next day after it's been all dried off, do you cease being baptized? No, it is an ongoing reality. In our baptismal rite, our baptismal liturgy, we make the sign of the cross on the forehead and the heart to mark a person as one redeemed by Christ and Him crucified. And in our confession and absolution, we say, or the pastor said, somewhere along the lines, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us all our unrighteousness. So, we've been put to death with Christ and we've been raised with Christ in baptism. The life we live is a life of faith that is not I but Christ who lives in me. And so, when we sin... What do we do? Repent. We repent. And when we repent, what do we ask God for? Forgiveness. 
forgiveness. And does God forgive? Yes. And in that way, we are putting to death, we are crucifying the sinful flesh with its passions and evil desires. And how else do we live the life of faith in our daily lives besides asking for forgiveness as well? How else do we do it? Just know that God loved you and lived to, to um, because he gave himself for us that we should love him and try to be how do, how do we do that, though? How do we know that God loves us? How do we know that we should be better people? What, what tells us? The Word. The Word. And so you read the Word. You study the Word. Paul uses, he calls it the sword of the Spirit. And in Hebrews, the Word of God is referred to as a sharp, devil-edged sword, able to pierce between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. And so when we read in God's Word, and we hear even simple things that we think we already know. You know, do not, uh, do not murder. Do not bear false testimony against your neighbor. Honor your father and mother. We know that we fall short of those, right? And that's the law of God condemning us. But then, what do we know? Are we just left in our condemnation? Are we forever guilty and damned? We know the gospel. We know the gospel. So we live out our life of faith, our life of baptism, crucifying the flesh by its sinful desire and its sinful desires by hearing, reading, and receiving the word of God, which gives us that law, which shows us our sin and condemns us, and the gospel, which gives us comfort and forgiveness and life and we listen to his word and we live as he commands us and then when we fall when we fail we do it again we ask for forgiveness and god raises us up the life of a christian the life of faith the life of the baptized is a constant life of putting to death sin and being forgiven and raised a new life. And who does it? Jesus, God. God, which ties back to kind of the very beginning of day three, you know, try hard to be good. That's not enough. God has to put to death our sin, and he has to give us a new life, a new heart, a right spirit in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.